Greetings, fellow citizens of Disneyland. This is a podcast series just for you. I'm going to explain to you what I'm attempting to do, and hopefully you'll give me a couple of minutes before you hit stop and move on to whatever else you got to listen to today. I know there's so many podcasts, so many YouTube channels. I'm always very excited that you decide to spend one minute or one hour with me. But as I move forward with doing Disneyland for Designers and committing to doing it once a week, uh, not even when the park reopens, like it, it doesn't stop. It is now due to all my members over at Club 1313. It is stabilized. It is what it is. And I'm committed to doing it for at least another year. So when the park reopens, we'll still have weekly podcasts. That doesn't go away. But one of the things that I pride myself on is trying to document the history, the story, and the emotional feelings of Disneyland. Trying to take what we feel in our hearts and that lump that we get in the back of our throats and that hair that stands up on the back of our neck and translate that into words, into stories. Because as I've come to realize, many of you know all the fun facts. You know there's a basketball court at the top of Matterhorn. You've met Pepper's ghost several times. But it's the emotional part of the part that I feel is sort of the untold story. And that story is told best from so many different perspectives because after all, we all fall in love with this place a little bit differently. And we all have a different emotional attachment to what this park means to us. For me, it's definitely a bit of a, of a childhood that didn't provide these type of means. After all, and I'll keep this short, I was the young kid who had a stepmom that said, no, even though you have good grades, even though you have perfect attendance, you can't go do these things that you want to go do because you've been having too much fun lately. And to me, that became my declaration of, oh, the meaning of life is to have too much fun. And I find myself at a certain age in my life, which I will no longer name publicly, of somebody who has delivered a, a solid mindset of having too much fun. But the fun that we have at Disneyland is unique in our own perspective. But we have so many other citizens of Disneyland, so many other people at the park that unfortunately we just don't know. Every attraction is full of strangers. Every show that you see during the day or during the night is full of strangers. Every time you go into a restaurant, there's strangers sitting all around you. But don't kid yourself. Like 90% of those people are having just as a magical day as you. So part of my idea with the Citizens of Disneyland series is to capture that magic from as many different perspectives as possible. And if you don't know this about me, I've been a professional podcaster since 2014, and I have had the extreme honor to interview some really huge names in the art world, in the entertainment world, and in the business world. And I love doing interviews because I love meeting people. I love understanding different people's perspectives. And after you've done a few hundred of these, you start to realize that there's character traits that successful people have. You, you start to realize that there's a mind shift for people that get themselves off of the bench in life and put themselves into the game. So as citizens of Disneyland, today I happen to be talking to a former cast member uh, somebody who worked with the park for 15 years, but it won't always be that. Sometimes it will just be someone like you or I. Well, I actually worked for the park for a couple of years as well, but it will sometimes be just a fan, just somebody who loves the park. 
And I don't mean that as an insult, because the idea of this series is to interview people that are just fans, just people that bought an annual pass or a ticket for the day, but to treat them with the same respect, the same dignity as when I had Rolly Crump sitting across from me, the same respect that I would give any CEO, any famous artist, anybody who's a captain of industry in the entertainment industry that I love so much. The idea is to take regular folks and interview them with that same amount of TLC of trying to understand what motivates them, what inspires them, and why are they such a great citizen of Disneyland. Today's guest is Federico Flores. He is a California-born son of an immigrant from Mexico who taught him how to love the world of Disneyland and would go there all the time on family trips back to his father's native land of Mexico. What I love about his background is I love that Southern California has become a melting pot of all different people from all different places, everybody coming here for a gold rush. And not actually like gold, like we're not thinking that we're going to be able to make bracelets and watches once we get to California, but there is an optimism of California. There is a momentum that it runs at that is very different than the other 49 states that make up of America. And hey, I've lived in New York State, I've lived in Kentucky State, I've lived in Indiana. So I've lived in, you know, sort of the middle, I've lived on the edges, I've lived in the quiet, I've lived in the busy. And Disneyland is a reflection of this momentum. It, the park itself represents all the different people, all the different lifestyles, and sort of that promise of California, which I feel like Disney's California Adventure set out to do initially, took a little bit of reconfiguring, and it got there, and it now kind of is that symbolism of how great this place is. Neither here nor there, though. This is a series to do that same thing, to, to take folks, to pull them aside, to have a meaningful conversation with them, and for you to not only learn about other people, their perspectives, how the park has changed them, how it's enriched their lives, but also, just like magic happens that I always refer to as a mirror going down Main Street so that everybody that stands on its sidewalk can see themselves represented in that fantastic parade that was cut way too short due to the last couple of years. But I want this podcast series, even though you may never be one of the citizens who gets to sit across from me, I hope that that happens. But even if you never make it on the other side of the microphone, that you feel like there's somebody making content that represents you. Don't worry. I want to interview Imagineers. I want to interview people that have worked for the park at all different levels. Those are definitely goals that I have. But I also want to interview you, the citizens of Disneyland, the people that wait out in that parking lot, that get allowed into Mickey and friends at the break of dawn, the folks that fill up the Esplanade waiting to take on a day of the magic. So whether you're a local that comes to the park way too much or whether you live way far away and you don't get to come nearly enough, this is a series on Disneyland for the designers for people just like you, citizens of Disneyland, people that love it. They love the attractions. They love the shows. They love the snacks, but they also love the pass. They also love the passion. And this is my attempt to try to document something that I feel like a lot of people are overlooking because they're always trying to build the numbers or get the big, great name in there. And, you know, a lot of these sort of older guys, they have the same 10 stories that they tell all the podcast over and over again. 
This is my attempt at always trying to make very original content. This is my attempt at always trying to tell the Disneyland story from the most emotional perspective that I can. And even though I plan on interviewing plenty of people just like myself that are a commoner, today we're going to start off with royalty. Today's guests worked their way from dancing in the streets of Main Street USA here in Disneyland, California, all the way over to Tokyo, Japan, where they would become a face character. We're talking to a Disneyland prince today, but also someone who I've come to meet through Club 1313 and through the YouTube channel that has gone on to be just an absolute citizen of Disneyland, always passionate, always polite, and always displaying their love of the park. And from the way that I can always tell, this person, this person gets it. So when you see these pop up on the podcast feed, even though you may not recognize their name as one of the great Imagineers, one of the great minds that built the park, even though you might not see their name the same way you would see Indiana Jones, Space Mountain, or Rise of the Resistance, I would urge you to give these episodes a listen because I think this is where you will find the most of yourself in the podcast. I feel like these are the episodes where you'll hear the Disneyland story in a more unique way and something that reminds you of all the good times that you had there. And hopefully, if I do my job correctly, something will remind you that you are special. You are somebody that believes in the magic. You are somebody that upholds it, takes it on, and you are more than an annual pass holder. You are more than a single day ticket purchaser. You are a citizen of Disneyland. And this series is designed to celebrate you and your love for the park. So what do you say? We get started with our very first ever guest on our new side series. These won't be every week, but I will sprinkle them in just to keep diversity in the content, to keep the way that we're talking about the park always changing and always being different, and giving you the ability to hear your own voice heard on a podcast that tries to tell you the best version of the Disneyland story. It's Wild Prince on Disneyland for Designers episode 54, but Citizens of Disneyland episode numero uno. friends it's episode 54 of disneyland for designers and i just wanted to give you a heads up i didn't want to sneak attack it because it's been a weird time to be a disney fan but next episode is 55 and starting at 55 there will be a free portion of the podcast and there will be a portion of the podcast that is for my club members over at club 1313.com i just want to break this down real quick if you have the means to join the club would love to have you over there Enjoy all the bonus content, all the hangouts. We've been doing Zoom calls. We did a an exclusive live stream in virtual Disneyland, and Beth hung out the entire time. We've been having a fun time in the clubhouse, but if you can't make it over to Club 1313 and become a member, I totally get it. No offense. You will always have free podcasts, and you'll always have free YouTube videos, but if you want to support the content and make sure that it goes the long haul and get all that extra stuff and hear the second part of the conversation do me a favor whenever you can visit club 1313.com become a member of not only the content it's more than a patreon it's a clubhouse it's a place where people that can hang out that enjoyed the parks just like you do and, and for me most importantly they're investing in the content they're a partner with the content so it's not like i'm a youtuber that's like hey give me your money so i can live this extravagant lifestyle it's like hey 
how about you help me build this together? And as you're hearing today, Club 1313 member on the podcast, have another one coming up later on the week. You're going to see a lot of collaborating. And that's because I just don't always want this to be like my perspective, my way of telling the Disney story. I mean, don't get me wrong. I love telling my version of the Disney story, but I also think that it's important for this community to be fan driven. So, uh, yeah, I've put together over a thousand podcasts. I've put together a couple hundred YouTube videos. I think that I have a beat on how to do all this a little bit different. And it all starts with you. So if you got the means, join us at club1313.com. If you don't, I will still be creating free content for you. So don't freak out. I I don't want to eliminate anybody. I know it's weird times, but at the same time, I have to support those that are supporting me. All right, let's get back into today's conversation. I hope you enjoy this one. I know it's a little bit of a different kind of show, and that's what you should expect. Always new things happening, always experimenting, and always trying to find a way to bring the community into the content. Woo! Love making this content. Love this community. Wild Prince, because I like okay. the idea of actually talking to a little bit of Disney royalty here. So let's oh, yeah. let's rewind. Let's go back because I think that this is sort of an important baseline for everybody that's listening. And thank you for being my first guest on the Citizens of Disneyland series. But let's go back to this. What is your earliest Disney parks memory? So uh, I was born in San Francisco. Okay. And my dad is from Mexico, so every year, twice a year, we would drive down to Mexico. Uh-huh. Five weeks in summer and two weeks at Christmas time. And we would always, always stop at Disneyland on the way down. And sometimes on the way back. So my father made a comment to my mom saying, wouldn't it be really nice if someday our kids worked here? Because he was so impressed back then with Disneyland, with the quality of it, with the people, how clean it was, it's very yeah. friendly. So my first memory, and I know people aren't going to be able to see this, but I'm going to hold it up for you to see, um, is I have pictures of me riding, and I remember this distinctly, riding the Matterhorn <laughs> when it had the green tubular steel. Yeah. And when there was, um, not the inside wasn't finished, so you could see a lot of scaffolding. Yeah. And they had the single cars and uh, let's see if you can kind of see it. it looks like that. That is a old school Matterhorn image. No doubt about it. Like that's the tubular steel. It's the first ever tubular steel roller coaster. Absolutely. Uh, that is classic. So what that's, year are we looking at right there? Is that what early eighties? Uh, no, that was, let's see. I was probably, I would say that's probably like 69 69 69 70 oh well yeah yeah okay so so let me figure this out your dad's from mexico yes born and raised when does he come to america he came to america in the 50s he was a professional soccer player in mexico Uh uh-huh and he came to the united states at about 50 55 actually the year that Disneyland opened we just had a conversation about this and 
Uh, he says he remembers. He remembers all the big fanfare about Disneyland Open that Walt Disney was going to open some park on Mickey, Mickey Mouse Park. Yeah, yeah. Is what, he, is what he called it. So your dad comes here in 55. The park is, you know, uh, in the press as much as anything could be in the press back those days. It was an entirely different news cycle. But this family ritual starts of visiting the park going back home to to the old country which i love that you can right. drive to the old country by the way i'm a huge fan of mexico i love it down there and i have missed not being there for the last 18 months but you create this ritual right so for you yes this is a really an interesting experience because you're blessed to live in the the bay area san francisco which is sort of a world-renowned mm-hmm. city full of culture all kinds of different people and different things happening so you're already an exposed child but then you're getting to go to mexico which kind of puts everything in perspective. I mean, it is yes. so beautiful down there, but it's a, an entirely different lack of resources, a lack of infrastructure. So that puts everything sort of in perspective for you. But then you have Disneyland pegged between these two destinations, which is sort of this utopia, right? Like what we all love about going through the tunnel on the right, don't go through the tunnel on the left and be a jerk, is that you get to walk into this sort of perfection. And if I had to be a a gambling man, I'd say your old man who wanted more for his son, wanted more for his family, came to America, really loved that sort of utopia presentation that Disneyland had because that was the American dream that he was trying to buy into. You are 100% correct. That's awesome. That is so cool that your dad was like, you see this? This is awesome. This is what we should all be striving for. Because, and and I think that you will see this as well. When I went to Paris, France, and I know that you would go on and actually work for Disney. I'm kind of jumping ahead a little bit. And I know that you would be a part of the team that would open up some of the uh, Asian parks. Which, which park were you a part of? Tokyo Disneyland. Tokyo Disneyland. So one of the things that I noticed immediately when I went to Paris was there was that lack of multi-generational Disneyland love, right? Where the park is this background, this through line, a multi-generational through line of birthdays and anniversaries and unbelievable vacations. And if you live in California, when your family comes out from the East Coast, you always host and take them to Disneyland and you walk high like you built the place because you know all the shortcuts and, oh, no, 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 we're not doing Peter Pan at 11 a.m. We're going to do this at 11 p.m. Like you know how to navigate the park. And so when you, somebody that has always had Disney in your background, when you went to Japan, how was it sort of seeing people discovering it for the first time, like at a complete blank slate? Um, Japan was an amazing experience. I actually arrived into Japan for my first time when they were for their fourth anniversary. So they were already four years old. Right. Um, And it was very, very brand new still. Um, People were constantly wide-eyed and amazed and I was just there in 2019. I try to go every year that I can. Yeah. Now. Oh, did you go last year? No, I had to cancel <laughs> my. De- I, I had to cancel my December trip. Oh, you so. mean somebody canceled a Disney trip in 2020? I'm shocked. I'm shocked. You heard it here first. Yeah, a little travel ban and just not a good time to go. Right. No, no worst time ever. Right. So uh, their response to soaking up disney culture they embraced it yeah they embodied it and i always tell people if you want the quintessential disney experience 
go stay a week at the Tokyo Disney Resort and you will rediscover what Disney magic is all about. Well, it's it's interesting that you say that because I, I feel like when it's a new thing that's kind of dropped on you, right? You have this sort of, I'm going to say non-jadedness acceptance of it. I mean, that is if you buy in because there's just a certain portion uh, or a certain percentage of America that just they, they see Disney parks as a place where water bottles cost five bucks, bottle of water is five bucks, yes. and, and parking is $25. And there's something in their brain where they'll never be able to get over the fact that it's expensive parking and expensive bottles of water and everything else is just, you know, they see it as a, a, a cash trap. But I would have to say the cool thing about your experience of being part of the early uh, team of Tokyo is that you have a culture that really loves what happens in America. Like they love our pop culture, but then what I think the Oriental land company has done well, and this is just based on good for you. Thank you. This is just based on sort of an assumption. It seems like because they're not technically Disney parks, right? Like they're licensed. They license the IP. They have the Imagineers design it, but I think that it is very important that the majority shareholder is locals right so that it it does cater to them and i think that we've as we've gotten more into a, a land of diversity which i believe is a great thing i am pro splash mountain going away hot take uh, which it shouldn't be a hot take it should be a regular take but when we look at shanghai and i know i'm jumping over to china that park i think really really resembles east meets west and it's a part of because the chinese are so proud that they wouldn't have it any other way like they insisted like we have to have the biggest castle china has to have the biggest castle and they essentially have a walmart that you know 15 princesses could live in but i would have to assume that that was sort of an interesting part for you because you're experiencing this thing that's been a through line through your entire life but with this twist which is now there's three things happening there's u.s pop culture there's disney culture but there's also japanese asian culture all blending together that mix is something that i cannot wait to consume at least once in my life you you absolutely must do it and i want to be there when that happens <laughs> <laughs> the bricky meetup in japan i can't wait to make it happen yeah, I would be more than happy to be your tour guide. <laughs> <laughs> well, you might know a thing or two. So when you were working there, and and we can kind of go back and forth, I'm sure. assuming that you, was your very first job for Disney, were you a in-park character? I was. Uh, um, actually, in, are you referring to Japan right now? Well, no, just your overall career as a, as a cast member. My career started, have you ever heard of a group called Junior Achievements? Yeah, yeah, it's like a high school thing, right? It's a high school thing where major corporations sponsor and hire a group of high schoolers and they teach them about business. You have to create a product, you have to make something, you make you get paid, all of this stuff happens. And there are sponsors like Bank of America, IBM, big corporations. Well, mine happened to be Disneyland. <laughs> how's that for how's that for some foreshadowing? Right? Love that. Love that. So so my first job was actually working in junior achievement to create a product and then uh, learning about marketing and selling and all that stuff. And it was, Disneyland was our parent company. That's great. We had, and so that's actually where it started. Um, I started working at 16 years old at Disneyland. So, um, and that happened because my best friend, my oldest and best friend had gone away for uh, Christmas break and came back 
in January and said, I just had the most amazing job. I was Winnie the Pooh in the Christmas parade. <laughs> oh man, that's my dream. <laughs> and, uh, and he said, it was the best job. I made so many friends. It was so much fun. We have to go. They're going to be auditioning for a summer parade and we all have to go do it. And I'm like, I don't think I want to do that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I can understand that. I mean, 16, uh, you know, and I know that work laws are different now than then. Cause if I'm doing this right, we're talking about 16 somewhere in the seventies, right? So, uh, this would have been around 81, 81. 82. Okay. So yeah. around 81, 82, you're 16. Like, I think that there's one sort of the, um, the, the self-confidence of the brain that says I'm cool with putting on this costume and like selling popcorn, but I don't know if I want to walk down a parade route and be a character, right? Like you kind of have to, you got to kind of get to know yourself a little bit before you feel confident being somebody else in public, unless you're just straight up looking for escapism. So what was your entry level spot as a CM? Um, I was a parade dancer actually. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> Yeah, I started in parades. So I was already a theater kid by that point. I'd sure. already done a couple of shows. I'd, I'd been in a choir that toured Western United States and Canada twice. Um, so I was already going down that showbiz line. And so I said, sure, sure, we'll go. My friend got a group of us together. We went to his house the night before, and he taught us this little simple character routine of like, you know, march, march, step, pivot, step, kick, little, you know, yeah. little stuff like that. And uh, the next day, we all met at his house, and I said, hey, I'll drive. So there's four of us all together. We go to the audition. You go into a big room, and they're not doing a little character routine. It's a full-on dance routine. And uh, thankfully, I was a pretty good mover and starting to be a dancer at that time. Yeah. And they line you up. They make you go across the floor. And at the end of the corner of the of the, of the dance routine yeah. Yeah. is the show, show director and the choreographer's and when you get to them, they say, okay, you sit on this side, you sit on that side. Wow. Just straight up getting picked for kickball in gym class when you're a kid. So just like that, just so like that. Yeah. Four, I love this. Four lovable dancers make their way to Disneyland for a dream. How many of you four got hired? So I was the last one to go. Yeah. And I noticed that my three friends got put on one side of the room. Uh oh. Now it was my turn to go across the floor. Yeah. And when I get to the end, the show director says, Can you do it one more time? And I said, Sure. And I walked back to the to the other corner of the room and I came across the floor again. And she goes, Would you sit on this side, please? And I said, Sure. And that's when I was like, Uh oh. You were on, I was the, on opposite the opposite side. side. Opposite side of your buds. Yeah. Okay. Now, the worst part is, is that, of course, I got the job and they didn't, but, <laughs> but I drove to that audition. I, so they had to wait in the parking lot for about two hours oh, no. while I did paperwork, while I got fitted, while I had got measured, while I got, you know, pictures taken, all, all oh. the stuff that happens when you get, when you're a new hire. And, uh, you know, I walk out to the car you know, with my head hanging in shame. Yeah. I feel so bad. I was like, I'm so sorry. You guys had to wait. And they were like yelling and screaming and just they, cheering up. They're and happy down. for and I got the, Yeah. They were very happy for me. And it was because of my best friend, Alan Espinoza. I'll mention him here. Um, that I had a 15 year career because he actually dragged me to that audition. Cause I was like, I don't know if I want to do this. Yeah. So what's interesting about that is at the beginning of that two hours, your friends were talking total 
you know, S all about you. I don't curse on this podcast. They're just talking total S about you. And then one of them realizes we should be nice to him because now we have a bud that can sign us into the park. So they also went on an emotional journey that day as well. So you start out as a dancer on the parade route. So this means that you had to move down to Anaheim. You had to move to Southern California. Like you had to just change your whole life. And if I'm following along, what I find interesting about this is you had already been in choir. You were already a theater kid. Once again, I'm going to go back to the old man because the old man had already beaten the odds of being a professional athlete. You obviously at home had that type of parenting that wasn't like most parents. Like, uh, don't you think you should try to become an accountant or don't you think you should get a job over at the factory? Like you were being groomed subconsciously to go whatever direction you wanted to go in. And I think that is a big part of the story for parents that are listening today that have little ones at home. I got both sides of that. My dad was always like, do what you want to do. Follow your dream. I'd love for you to be a soccer player. And that didn't happen. Yeah. I'd love for you to be a mechanic. That didn't happen. Yeah. My mom was like, I want you to be a pilot. And I'm like, that didn't happen. Yeah. Cause I just kept getting cast and show after show. And I was doing, um, you know, high school theater. We actually moved down to orange County when I was about seven or eight years old. Okay. So that helped. And, um, you know, when my dad said, I, I hope our kids work here someday, my big sister who was in high school at the time, or when she got into high school, she got a job at Disneyland. Oh, cool. So my big sister gets a job at Disneyland. So she was in high school. I was in junior high. Her job was to kind of babysit me after school. And what she would do is she would get out of school, go pick me up. We drive to Disneyland. <laughs> she would sign me into the front gate. <laughs> she would go do her four hour shift in Fantasyland, selling Apple turnovers in front of that big pirate ship. Remember the uh, yeah. pirate ship? Yeah. You showed it the other night. It was great. Oh, I love that pirate ship, man. I, I want, I wish there was a virtual Disneyland because I would love to see what that, even though this is a hot take, okay? This version of Fantasyland looks better because they went with the, you know, the European village vibe. That looks better than the Renaissance fair that they have out on the East Coast. I do not like that look of a Fantasyland yeah. whatsoever. But mm-hmm. the big trade for that was getting rid of that pirate ship, that beautiful pirate ship sitting as the anchor on the far end of it. Like, man, oh, man, yeah. like what a with Skull Rock right there. Oh, gorgeous. When I got yeah. to see a version of that in Paris with Skull Rock and a pirate ship mm-hmm. sitting out into the water, it was kind of like, I know. This isn't the OG, but at least I'm creating this memory in my Disney brain. And that's one of those moments where right. my wife is like, why are you like getting ready to cry? And I'm like, shh, just let it happen. Just let it happen. We don't, <laughs> we don't question tears of magic. We just let them happen. So you're, you're basically like at I an after at Disneyland. You're an after school program at Disneyland, which is phenomenal. So absolutely. So you have like just all kinds of exposure of being a little kid. So at an early age, you were able to flip your brain and realize that there's a lot more than attractions happening at Disneyland. Because if you're going there all the time and your sister's signing you in after a while, you're like, the line is too long for pirates. The line is too long for this, for that. And you start to, I'm assuming to embrace walking around and absorbing the culture and just realizing that this thing that a lot of kids dream of doing once in a childhood, you're doing a couple of times a week. Almost every day of the week. (laughs) (laughs) I hate you. Right. So uh, here's something funny. So I was there when they built big thunder mountain. Yeah. 
And I walked by it almost every single day. And one day I noticed when I got there that a train was stuck on lift B. So that out that exterior lift that yeah. you see. And it was there for several days. And so I'd start to like, you know, talk to the cast members that were post- positioned out front. And I said, so what's up with that train? It's been there for a couple of days. And they're like, why would you know that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because they're assuming every kid's like on vacation and then, then they, they go away the next day. Right. <laughs> and they said, well, yeah, there's something that, they, that happened on that train that they have to fix. And lo and behold, I'm having this conversation. And they said, you know, they're going to ho- hopefully get that train off that lift. and It's going to start running pretty soon. Um, but the ride hadn't opened yet. Yeah. And sure enough, we're having this conversation and you see the train start to move. You hear those announcements that start to happen. Right. You right. Know, before something stand clear, yeah. stand clear on the track, you know, train being sent into motion, lift B, all that stuff. Right. So um, I was one of the first people to ride Big Thunder Mountain because I was there all the time. And when they did their soft opening, I happened to be there wow. and rode it. Wow. It is my favorite ride in Disneyland is Big Thunder Mountain. It's, I'm a huge Big Thunder Mountain fan. It's such a classic. And what I love about Big Thunder Mountain, and this just says a lot about my overall love of Disney, is, you know, unlike you, I'm a product of bad geography. I wouldn't see Disneyland proper until I was way into being an adult. And I kind of had to learn all the history at once, which why I can resonate with the, the great people of Tokyo and that to me, it was like, wow, this is awesome. And I literally, you know, being stressed out about moving to Southern California and changing my cost of living, you know, exponentially, mm-hmm. I read right. Disneyland Wikipedia entries like they were bedtime stories. I literally have so many times I fell asleep and remember my iPhone hitting my face because I literally like let go of the phone while I was reading. And, uh, you know, Big Thunder Mountain, as I've come to understand, it's such a great attraction because it encapsulizes the complete history of the wild west of the park. <laughs> the western end of Disneyland has seen the absolute most transformation, the most turnover. Let's call it the Disney's California Adventure of Disneyland. Like it has just been completely massaged over the years. And right. I love that once they had a working plan that they knew that would stick which is big thunder. They really dedicated themselves to it. You know, once you build a Disneyland mountain, you don't tear it down. That is yet to ever happen historically. Uh, but I love that big thunder really has that long history embedded into it. Almost as if they said it took us a while to get here, but now we're here and we want to make sure that we preserve this deep history of Disneyland, but uh, we're not doing anything new. The, the mountain's going to stay for quite some time. I, uh, it, it is, it is my absolute. I love when they gave it that refresh. Oh yeah, the added effects. It was just, it's just spectacular. It's so much fun. It's fun at night. It's fun during the day. It's fun in the back row. It's just the theming, the the excellence that went into that ride is just spectacular. It also gives the western half of the park like a really nice landmark, you know, because when mm-hmm. you're far Absolutely. east, you have Space Mountain. When you're in the center of the park, you obviously have Sleeping Beauty, but also the you know the juxtaposition of Matterhorn sort of protecting her, overlooking her, almost as if that's the edge of the kingdom there. But right. Big Thunder, and also with its new LED light package, like it, it just is the embodiment of the western end of the park. And I think that one of the things they did that was so masterful is how far removed Galaxy's Edge is. Like it just. It doesn't really mm-hmm. exist at all, which is perfectly on brand for that theming. And, you know, there was 
so many of us that went there the first couple of months, as you said, this could literally be its own mini park inside of Disneyland because they masterfully made it so excluded from everything else. So let's move forward in your story here, though, because you start out as a dancer, Mm -hmm. but you would end up working your way over to an M-Park character. What's the actual name? Because I know that uh, a sculpted character is Mickey Mouse, right? When you're inside of a costume, that's a sculpted character. What is it called when you use your real face? You're a face character. (laughs) I couldn't have guessed that any better. (laughs) Well done. So what was your first face character role? Well, in California, um, I was always a dancer, which my face would always be showing. Okay. Um, I was, I was a slightly ethnic enough looking (laughs) to not get cast in any of the Prince roles in California. Yeah. Also, I was, you know, my height of 5'10 is not a height that they like for their princes. What's a prince going to stand? Higher? They're they're usually like over six foot. Okay. Okay. You know, they like them tall, especially nowadays. Um, However, in Japan, I was already taller than 90% of the population at 5'10. Yeah. And also, that wasn't wasn't an issue. You're wide enough to do in Japan. Right, like uh, I'm also slightly Hispanic. Ah, you don't worry about it. You play the role. Go on, go on and put on the suit. Uh, Yeah, I'm I'm half Mexican, half Puerto Rican. So there you go. Yeah, yeah. So, but in Japan, you're like full American, right? Like you look like North American guy. One hundred (laughs) percent. Well, there you go. There's that fantasy. Uh, So when you couldn't be a prince and you had to be a street dancer, I, I find this to be fascinating because. I don't know if you saw my review of this, but what I loved about Magic Happens, and, and you just told me my own assumption of this parade, Magic mm-hmm. Happens is amazing because I feel that it's a mirror that goes down Main Street. It reflects every demo, gay, straight, regardless of race, whoever you are on, on Main Street USA, you can see yourself in magic happens and i hate that it only got to go two weeks that was going to be so many people's big break and it just never really got going it never got its its full promise but i was there on the soft opening and my initial takeaway was this is the most diverse thing disney's ever done and then i sort of did a deep dive back on looking at parades of the past and realizing and i'm being funny here saying like congratulations you're white enough when you go to japan because essentially until magic happens all the parades have been very whitewashed and i'm curious you like honestly this doesn't mean that you didn't love your job it didn't mean that you don't love disneyland but was there a frustration that you're like sorry you're a little bit short and you're latino you have to stay in the street you can't get on the float like did that hurt your heart at all i'm going to be 100 percent honest with you back then it did um because i was, was like you know i think i'm a good looking guy <laughs> so i don't understand why that, you know that should be an issue um but i was always my face was always showing there yeah. were some times when i did get to do some of the costume characters which was always kind of fun yeah you know when you get to hide your face that was great yeah um and you i think you said you wanted to do pluto or tigger or somebody well i mean i'm too <laughs> tall i mean the ultimate dream is bricky to be mickey for like i i said for 15 minutes i'll sign any paperwork that they want me to do just let me know what it feels like to be Mickey for 15 minutes. But unfortunately due to my height, I think I would yeah. probably have to be like a, 
Pluto or not Pluto, uh, yeah. like Goofy. It would probably have to be that. I didn't. How meet- tall are you? Six, like right, like five eleven. Yeah. It's like right at six foot. And um, I did, I did meet a, a woman who gets folks like you prepared to go on stage, and mm-hmm. I, and she works Galaxy's Edge. And I said, okay, size up my height. Who could I be in in Galaxy's Edge? And she's like, you're a perfect height for Kylo Ren. And the thought of being a villain and just terrifying children it made me so happy to my core like it's like oh god i would just love to do those hand gestures so that i could operate that mechanical mouth but for you <laughs> for you when you you were a parade dancer and also when you were a parade dancer in in the states here at disneyland what parades did you or i mean is that main street electric was that mickey soundsation like which ones did you okay. work so it's funny that you talk about diversity because my very first parade was called the It's a Small World Character Parade. Oh, yeah. That is a wild pick out of the historical lineup of Disney parades. Well, I'm kind of giggly because you said, you know, there's not a lot of diversity back then. And my very first parade had like an Asia unit, a Latin unit, yeah. uh, you know, yeah. different units like that. And of course, I was cast as a Latin dancer in the Latin unit. So there you go. <laughs> you fit the part uh right but that's an interesting one because the theme was diversity on that attraction but that's that's a pretty standalone parade if we look historically because there was the big like uh the bicentennial one which was all like telling the story of america and uh, i got to see that live by the way oh really that's (laughs) awesome that's all that's another thing i'd like to see in a time machine so when you um what but what other parades did you work because you did the small world one but obviously if you were there for a while you did several others i would like to say that i was in the golden era of parades because that's when they used to do uh fantasy on parade yeah which was the christmas parade yeah uh the american gazette parade which was each unit had live music that was pumped out it was amazing um you have to. You should look that one up. That was that's a crazy one. I, I don't even recall um, that one. I, that's my next deep dive. Uh, the American Gazette Parade. Um, I did some of their special events. That they did. They did um, like state when they did state fair. They did an overlay of state fair. Um, I did that. Um, the thirtieth anniversary parade. There you go. That that that's a fun one. Did you? Did you do any yeah. of the parades that we would like, were you ever in main, well, I guess main street electrical, that's just all robots. Like did, did you ever do one of any of the more modern ones? Like what was the last parade that you worked on? The last parade that I did before I joined the cast of the golden horseshoe, because that's another part of the story. <laughs> um, so you would probably recognize uh, the, the, the Christmas parade that they, that they do every year. Yeah. Christmas fantasy. Oh, I love it. Right? I, that, what a, what a song to get to hear that song 30 times an afternoon. How could I resist? Right. I was in the first version of that parade. Wow. Wow. And Look at you. Yeah. yeah I, and I was, a uh, I was cast as the nutcracker. Um, they used to have a unit with all the toys in it. Mm-hmm. And I'll show you a quick little picture there. There I am. Oh, in wow. My costume. That nutcracker so. suit is pretty crazy. <laughs> That's pretty gnarly. Yeah, they built it on me. I remember going. I remember going and having being fitted and standing there for a very long time while like three ladies would like pin and pin and sew and pin and, and, and make <laughs> measurements and cut. And I was like, 
and I just gotten through a parade rehearsal. So I was like sweaty and stinky and I was like mortified, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's wild. Um, I did do two years of the electrical parade Okay, in Cal- in California. I also yeah. did two years of the electrical parade in Japan. In California, I was one of the court dancers. And in Japan, of course, I was a prince. <laughs> so let's, let's move over to being the prince. Were you always a prince in parades or would you also do meet and greets? We would do shows. We would do meet and greets. Um, I would do a lot of print work for them. I would do tours. I got to go to Hiroshima and Fukuoka, different cities, uh, promoting as an ambassador, the Disney brand yeah. as an ambassador, yeah. as a prince. Wow. So yeah, so that that was amazing. So I, I did get to do parades, a lot of a lot of waving from the float. Oh, I got that wave down, dude. Don't worry about it. I've, I've <laughs> if they ever call on me, if they ever need an older, uh, you know washed up looking prince you know the guy that just oh got God. the guy that just got ran out of the kingdom I, I would be the perfect guy to do that so okay this is what i'm dying to know this is i think the, the 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 big hook in my mind you put on the prince costume mm-hmm. and then you're standing up on the float you're waiting for your key to go out and then you go out you're on the parade route in tokyo what was it like the first time that you saw young children? I'm talking, you know, under the age of 10, like the ones that really believe everything is happening. Mm-hmm. It's not just magic, but it's their reality because the world hasn't told them any different yet. What was it like to see your reflection in their eyes and to be perceived as the real deal? Do you know when C-3PO says, I believe they think we're some sort of deity? <laughs> When he's talking about the Ewoks. Yeah. Yeah. That's what it felt like. Wow. Kids were, their eyes were so open. Their mouths were just like back then. uh, This was, so this was about 1987 was my first contract in Japan. And like I said, uh, Tokyo was turning about four years old, going into their big fifth anniversary celebration. And now it's very common for a lot of foreigners to be in Japan. Sure. A lot of, a lot of, a lot of expats live there. It's a very, very common thing. And uh, they're very used to that. But back then it wasn't as common. It was more unique to have a gaijin performer, which gaijin stands for round eyes. Yeah. Um, performer <laughs> in, in Japan. Yeah. And the Oriental land company had made a commitment to constantly import all their uh, import a lot of performers from Canada, from United States, from Australia, so they could play these characters. Yeah. And, and so I was part of that program. But as we get out, when I'd go out on tour into some of the more distant areas from Tokyo, and I would run into kids, they would just be like staring. And because they hadn't seen someone that looked like me outside of a television set. And you're dressed as a prince. So it's like the, the double whammy. A, a really yeah. good friend of mine, his name's Anderson Blue, and he's a an amazing like uh, sneaker artist. Like he he does all kinds of artwork around sneakers. He's designed sneakers for like you know Asics and Foot Locker and stuff. Did a collaboration with GI Joe, and he told me this amazing story that he took a uh, he toured Asia like doing some signings and and just doing some stuff. And he's like, dude, he's like, I got used to. He's like, I don't speak Chinese, but when I was in China, I just understood that people were just like. He's like a six foot four black guy from America. And everyone's like, can I just oh, get wow. a photo taken with you? And 
people just mm-hmm. wanted to have their photo taken next to him. And he was just like, it was so weird to be a celebrity just because of that. And I, I just love that story from him because he's such a great guy. And he's just like, it just became this thing where I'd be like, you need a photo with me. And I would just get my photo taken with people. So I could kind of understand that people are like looking at you and you represent something that they've seen their entire life in pop culture. And ultimately what America gives the rest of the world is pop culture. And you just actually hit the nail right on the head when you said the word celebrity. I went to literally being an instant celebrity. Yeah. If if I would step out onto the floor with my princess, whoever it was, you know, princess of the day, they were all the girls that I worked with were amazing. I would do uh, Snow Prince. I would do Prince Charming. Uh, I did Bert a lot as well, which was very fun. Imagine a, a, a Mexican Puerto Rican kid playing a British character, you know. <laughs> Yeah, just like Dick Van Dyke, my English accent is terrible. <laughs> I, <laughs> I saw, love Dick Van Dyke. I, I met him actually a few times working at Disneyland. He's awesome. So I he I had a random run in where I just was like pushing a door open and then Dick Van Dyke walked past me and wow. I was like, you know, that's like a real star. Like I, you know, you living out mm-hmm. here, you see people all, oh man, yeah. remember that was like the friend of Sons of Anarchy, like you know, like the third down cast character right, or whatever. Yeah. But seeing Dick Van Dyke, I'm like that's like a real Hollywood star. And just like, oh, sorry. Like, you know, just all disheveled and being him as he walked past me. I'm like, that's pretty wild. So, yeah, I could yeah. understand like falling into that role is just an unbelievable honor because, you know, when you're out there in Disney, perception is real. Everybody goes through the mm-hmm. gate with the agreement that I'm here submitting to expensive water and parking and throwing all that out. The real world dissipates. We're here to have a great time as a family. Mm-hmm. And especially if you have kids with you, you're there to make sure that they have one of those memories that they'll be able to recall for the rest of their life, which is a very good way to recruit very, very strong customer retention. <laughs> which Japan has. Oh, I bet. Um, my favorite memory, uh, one of my favorite things of being a prince, Yeah. Uh, when I was Prince Charming and Cinderella and I, we would walk through the castle. Now, just as a side note, when Tokyo Disneyland was built, and I'm sure you already know this, they kind of wanted a carbon copy of Disneyland and Disney World Magic Kingdom. So they yeah. kind of, they got to kind of pick and choose kind of the stuff, some of the stuff they wanted. Right. So the castle in Japan is almost identical to the castle in Florida. Right. So imagine walking from the back of the castle out to the front to look at the hub. Oh, man. We would walk through the castle. I got I got Cindy on my arm. Yeah. We're walking out to the front little balcony because then these ramps that go down into the hub. Yeah. And we would basically rest our hip bones up against this this ledge and just stare out over the kingdom, if you will. Wow. And we would notice people would start to see us there and just literally First 10s, 20s, 50s, hundreds of people would just start running towards us. And the best part was that they'd be taking photos of us from down below. And then they would hand their camera to the friend and say, take my picture. And then they would run all the way up to the side to get next to us, to take a picture. And then they would run all the way back down and swap cameras. And then the other person would come up and run. It was hysterical. And it was just such an amazing feeling to think like, I guess this is what like, you know, 
the Perones felt like in Evita, <laughs> you know, standing on the balcony of the Casa Rosada, you know, that kind of a feeling. It really was that kind of a feeling. Yeah, you get all the fun of royalty, but without all the consequences. Nobody told you who you had to marry and, and who you couldn't right. be. Like, you right. got to just, yeah. you got to, you know, uh, clock out of being royalty, which is something that if you're born into one of those bizarro families, you don't get the option of doing because you're basically bullied your entire life to keep up, you know, whatever the standard is. And as we know, you know, as civilization moves on, standards change, you know, people like we're always trying to become a better civilization. And those folks are caught between a rock and a hard place. But if you're Disney royalty, you just get to put on the outfit, walk out on that balcony and just in that moment, be that memory for all of those people. Yes. Dude. I know when you go as a fan of the parks, you get a lump in your throat sometimes. Sometimes the magic is just too much and you, you see it all lined up and you, you try to hold back or you just try to embrace it. But mm-hmm. I, and I know it's a job. I know there are days that you put on the costume and you didn't feel like doing it. Maybe you'd been having too much fun the night before, or, or you know, maybe you had that manager that you felt like, you know, wasn't working with you, was working against you. But aside from those, there just had to be moments where it became too big and you just felt like prince can't cry but a prince is really feeling like crying right now i mean is, is, <laughs> that has had to have happened right yes I'll, I'll give you two examples please do uh the first example um i was out in world bazaar which is their version of main street yeah in the in the front promenade area which is where the entrance to the park actually is where the floral mickey is yeah before you actually hit world bazaar main street proper um and there was a group of special needs guests, yep. w- which back in that time was r- something very rare to see in Japan. Yeah. And that's a, and that's a cultural thing. Yeah. It doesn't shock um, me. And there was one boy who was actually about my height, which is also very rare. Yeah. Uh, and he came up to me and he was, I don't know what he was saying, but he was very, very happy, very, very excited. And he got me in this hug. (laughs) It it happened so fast. My arms were literally pinned to my side. Yeah. And he was hugging me and just hugging me so tight. And literally our leads, two leads had to come and pry him off of me uh, because he wouldn't let go of me. Wow. He would not, he would not let go of me. And it, I was so touched. First of all, I was scared because I was like, whoa, what just happened? Yeah. And I'm like, and I was just, you know, talking nicely to him in English. Um, I was learning Japanese at the time. Yeah. You kind of had to. I, I embraced the culture. The moment I touched down, I embraced the culture. Oh, you have to. And that's the best thing that you can absolutely do. Yeah. Um, and they were like, the prince has to go now. He has to go. Right. And they're literally prying his arms <laughs> off of me. And when I got backstage, it just touched me so much to see that segment of the population has such an emotional reaction. Yeah. That, that was, that was incredible. So that, that, that made me feel very, very kind of like, like I'm a steward of this role. Yeah. A steward of this park and a steward of this company. Yeah. If that makes sense. So growing up, 
we, Mm -hmm. me and my sister had uh, two cousins and I don't know, you know, terminology is always changing. I'm no longer in this community, but I'll just say it. And I'm saying this as a polite way. I'm not trying to be rude. We had two cousins that were down syndrome. And I don't know if that's like a bad Mm -hmm. word in 2021 or not, but I'm not trying to be offensive. So our parents weren't overly progressive, but a very progressive thing that they did was just, you're going to go play with your cousin, Frankie and Sharon. And they didn't tell us anything was different. And then we were just like thrown in a room and mm-hmm. it was very awkward. If I'm being honest, it was very awkward learning how to navigate like that first hangout. But as we would hang out with them more, that all went away. And it gave me a lifelong understanding of how mm-hmm. to be around and also a lifelong, uh, complete appreciation of just how, and I mean, special, like, is not like a sympathy special, like special as in like extraordinary human beings. Those folks are, and there are a couple of memories of seeing down syndrome, you know, early adults watching the parades on main street that mm-hmm. like, I remember Tinkerbell giving the, these two brothers, I think they were brothers. How would I know? But I remember seeing Tinkerbell give them special attention and the way that it lit them up. Mm-hmm. My dad is stoic. My dad is stoic as can be. And I saw my dad getting choked up because I had taken him there for Father's Day. And uh, oh, nice. some of those memories of seeing the world, seeing the Disney experience through their mm-hmm. eyes, I'll never, ever forget. And also, a lot like you, I was waiting to ride Matterhorn. And I had a Down syndrome, uh, you know, sort of older kid ahead of me. And he turned around and I'm, I know how to communicate. You know what I mean? Like I, I'm, I'm very comfortable in that. And it's a shame that most people aren't. And I didn't realize that until I got older and I saw other people tense up. So I'm like talking to him. And then the next thing I know, he really liked my red beard and he had a fist full of my red beard in his <laughs> hand and his like dad or whoever spun around goes, Oh God. And he was just like, I am, I am so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm like, stop apologizing. It's totally fine. He wanted to touch the beard. He wanted to feel it. Do not worry about the, I mean, the dad was like shaken and I was just like, this is totally, totally okay and cool. But, um, you know, obviously I, I wasn't, love that. obviously I wasn't an apprentice, but I can understand those moments because that is peak magic at the park. There are, have been countless magical moments like that, that had happened to me over the 15 years of working with the Disney company. Yeah. And, and those, I think whether you reach any, anyone can have a moment like that. Yes. And cause you don't know where they're coming from and they see you as either you're a character, you're someone that's being nice to them or paying attention to them. It, it doesn't matter what the, what the tra- outer trappings are. It's one human making a connection with another human through some kind of like storytelling that's happening. And that that is what I find to be so great about going to the park. Mm-hmm. You know, there are VIDs, very important Disney's, where they think that for whatever reason their day's more magical than yours, and they they cut line, and you know they don't live by the rules. There are plenty of VIDs, but there are a lot of people that are there with this sort of similar mindset that we're both doing this together today. And you do see a commonality of like civility that you don't always see, especially if you've lived in larger cities where people are just, you know, sort of 
as you know, self um, preservance, you learn how to walk with your head down and not look at people. There mm-hmm. is a friendliness at, at, at the park that I really enjoy. And, and ultimately as I was fortunate enough to kind of worm my way into like the club 33 circuit, the, mm-hmm. the, the thing that I've found to be most fascinating about that, like sub sector of Disneyland wasn't necessarily the food or the exclusiveness of being like removed from everybody else. I found that to be a little bit like kind of very Disney, but un-Disney in a very weird way. But what I enjoyed about it was, is that it really was a community of people that had been members for years and decades and, and seeing people at Disneyland walk into a bar and be like, Oh my God, I haven't seen, you know, the Smiths for a long time. And then hearing questions like, well, your oldest daughter now, is she back from college? And just hearing that kind of community relationship inside of a place where you would assume everybody is a one day vacationer from wherever in planet earth. Like whenever you see the community embodied at Disneyland, to me, it makes Walt's vision feel a little bit more real and it makes disneyland feel like disneyland california not a place that sits instead of anaheim california if you understand like the the difference there Mm -hmm. oh absolutely absolutely i would like to share um a moment one i once i had been retired from working for disney um like i say once a prince always a prince yeah so well, I wanted uh, to ask you about what it must be like to go back as a civilian now. So my very first time that I went back to the Tokyo Disney Resort, leaving leaving Japan was very difficult. Every time I leave Japan, it's getting easier for me now. Yeah. But when I would leave Japan, I would like literally be sobbing on the plane for about 45 minutes. It was just like like, like part of my soul was being ripped out every time I would leave. I just feel very at home there. That's that's great. It's, it, it's a very interesting feeling. Yeah. Um but my first time back to the resort, 19 years had passed. And so I was there for the fourth anniversary through the fifth anniversary and into the sixth anniversary. And then I went back for the 25th anniversary of Tokyo Disneyland. Uh-huh. And they had already opened Tokyo Disney Sea at this point. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. And, Don't get me started. Don't get me started oh, on that oh. masterpiece. It was almost built right down the road from my house. It drives me insane. Yeah. Long Beach missed out. Uh, when I when I did that deep dive, I like set up in bed and was just like, "You got to be kidding me! You got to be kidding me! <laughs> this was almost down the street from my house. Get out of here!" I'm I'm going to be very frank with you and say I'm so glad that Japan did it. Yeah, yeah. and not Long Beach. Yeah, it, I, I, so 100. percent um, the decision making they had then, they would have watered that idea down. It would have been a food court on the beach. It would not have become what it, you know, the timing was right for that to go off. And the Oriental Land Company, they don't hold back on spending. They went right they on it. They, I mean, that's 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 their pride, right? Like they they mm-hmm. will go as hard as they need to go. And you know, that's why that park is revered as the greatest theme park on planet Earth. And I would second that notion. Yeah, yeah. All right. <laughs> Easy with your humble bragging. Come on. Go on with your story. How much longer do I have with you? Okay. So um, I go back to the park after 19 years. Uh, a good buddy of mine is working with Cirque du Soleil to yeah. install their show Zed, a permanent Cirque show in Japan Yeah, that was built in a special theater there, the Mayahama Theater. And so we're going through the park, and I had some photographs of me as Prince Charming from 
nearly 20 years before. Yeah. And so my friend is with me and I said, I want to get a picture with Cinderella and Prince. I just have to do it. I right. Have to do right. It. What a time capsule. So they're open in they're in that open area in front of main street that I talked about earlier. And they're backed up against a planter and there's literally a U shaped ring of like eight to 10 people deep all the way around them. Right. And they were being so lovely with the kids and with the, and, and just interacting and talking. And I was just so amazed. I was like, wow, the magic is still alive. And I feel so thankful that the legacy that I was a part of yeah. this institution of face characters in Japan yeah. was still alive 20 years later and thriving. And the response of the children and of, and of adults, even more so adults were so crazy to get photos with them. Um, so I was on the on the very side of their periphery vision next to the planter, probably stood there for about a good 15, 20 minutes and just enjoying the interaction. Yeah. And I had my little pictures ready because I wanted to show them. And after about 20 minutes, they both turned to me and said, you, you're next. Come over here. Oh, wow. And so I walked up to them and I said, it would mean a great deal to me if I could have my photo with you. And then I pulled out my photo and I said, because I was you 20 years ago. <laughs> and without skipping a beat, Cinderella said, it's so lovely to see you again. And Prince Charming put his hand on my shoulder and he said, welcome home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The welcome home. Yeah. I, I, I see the magic. <laughs> yeah, uh, man. I nearly lost it. My, my buddy's like, are you okay? And I'm like, take the picture now yeah, before, I, before I lose it. Man. It was such a beautiful moment that encapsulated my entire Japan experience. And I could talk, we could, we could go on talking for Japan for hours because I had so many experiences like that over there. Um, but that was, those are my two big memories of, of being part of that culture. It's, it's those little moves, right? I mean, the attractions are phenomenal. The shows are world-class. The snacks are awesome, but it's mm-hmm. those little oh, moves yeah. like when, oh man, you're going to get me when Bonavista street reopens and you're there mm-hmm. on opening day and the cast members yeah, oh, just yeah. say, welcome back, welcome home. Oh. And it just, you're feeling that in your heart already, but it's just those little observations. And, mm-hmm. um, I try to play that game back with the cast members because I realize that the CMs that are working in California right now they're not doing the job that they signed up for. You know, these are people that went out of their way. You know, a lot of them, no place is perfect. People do settle into their careers and become cranky, but largely these are people that said, I want to work someplace. It's fun. I want to be a part of this story. And it's not their responsibility to remind adults that their nose is part of their face. Like that's not what any of these people signed up to do. So I've been trying to have fun with the CEMs because I realize they're in a bad spot right now, but they still need to work. Um, and so I like doing things like when we had the high winds a couple weeks ago, I would ask CMs, I'm like, do you, have they announced if the fireworks are canceled tonight or not? And just like reminding them of older times, like does yeah. cheer them up. And when I went last Monday, every CM that sort of engaged with me, you know, I would just say, Hey, happy anniversary because it was the 20th anniversary of that park. And there's just, there's just such a way where it it's, 
it's the little details, right? The sort of acknowledgement. And the reason why I wanted to do the Citizens of Disneyland theme podcast is because there is a mindset of people that treat it like a theme park and there's nothing wrong with that. Like some people are just on vacation. They don't care. They're spending money and they're they're having fun with their loved ones and it's a day in their life and that day is done. But then those are then there are those of us that do try to embrace sort of the citizens mindset and try to really think of that place. Like it does feel like home. It does feel familiar. We do know all the past. We do know the history. We always want to learn more. We want to meet more people there. Like there is just something about that transformation in your mind. And I, I would have to ask you, like, when you go back now as somebody that worked there at such a huge chapter in your life. And by the way, I mean, he's still very much involved in this sector of the entertainment world, but what does it feel like to go back in now just as a straight up civilian buying a ticket, being an AP holder? Like, what does it feel like now when you know what it's like to be on the other side of that line? It feels like I get to enjoy 100% enjoy all the stuff that I helped put time and energy into. Yeah. There's a tremendous responsibility that comes off of my shoulders and I get to enjoy it as a guest, which is what I tell people when they say, you worked there for 15 years. Why do you go all the time? I said, because now I get to enjoy it as a guest. Yeah, I get that. Now I get to experience the magic coming at me as opposed to being on the side where I'm delivering the magic. Yeah. And both of those sides are equally wonderful. I, I, I completely get that because I grew up in the music business and ultimately it kind of made me hate music, you know, and, and mm. this isn't my original thought. This is something that people will tell you. If you get too close to something you love, you will learn to hate it. And so when I was honored to be asked to be an artist for the Wonderground gallery, I told my wife, I'm like, I'm going to do like a half a dozen projects for them. I want to do it just enough to say that I did it, but I don't want to do it long enough to where I learn to resent it and hate it. You know, like, and I never had any bad mix ups. I never got caught in the bureaucrats or the, or the bureaucracy of a business that is that big. I mean, you know, when you're talking about a corporation, the size of Disney, like it's a small body of government. So they're just by stat statistical human interactions are just going to be some people that like, you know, work against you, not work with you. And I just, I didn't want, I never wanted any of that. I just wanted the fun part. So I got to just do it just enough to say that I did it just enough to put it on my resume and I couldn't quit fast enough, which is insane to some people that were like, why would you ever stop doing it? I'm like, I had a different path that I wanted to go on. I wanted to become someone that, told the Disney story. I had a very bizarre and ambitious goal with the park, but um, I can completely see why you being there that long, it taught you a different way to love it. After all, you were raised there. You, you had so many memories there, but now you get to go back and just enjoy it with that very informed mind of how it does work, how it should work, what, you know, you understand how the magic's happening and it only enriched it for you. Absolutely. And when you talk about the company, they make decisions based on, on their need as every company does. Yeah. And I think people sometimes forget that Disney is in the business of making magic, right? Yep. I think you said something very close to that. Yep. And, um, and so at the end of the day, it, it is a business. 
and they need to do what they have to do to survive in order for us to continue having this experience. Yeah. And that experience has changed over the last, you know, 60 years and it will continue to evolve and change. And we just evolve and change with it and take the enjoyment that's meant for us. So that's how I look at it. Just like now, it seems bizarre to just walk up to a Disney park and not have to go through security. Like that just, that seems impossible. I cannot even imagine what that would be like Yeah. 10 years from now. It will be bizarre to be like, I mean, you don't need to get a reservation. You know, like it's just, that is the way that things sort of evolve and it evolves naturally. And, you know, mm-hmm. once again, there's this certain population that's just like, you know, they can't look past the price of water and parking. And then there's yeah. a certain population that because they love the park so much and because it's so personal to them, they can often get confused that like Disney being a business that makes the magic. Now let me repeat that. They're a business that makes magic. Mm -hmm. They take some of these business moves as like a personal attack on them. Like how dare they do Mm -hmm. this to me? If Walt was alive, he'd be dead again. You know? And it's just like, they do these things to stay profitable and because they are so beyond their, their skis with their profitability, that's where the money comes from to do all these sort of impossible things. And I just think that it takes a certain level of like intelligence and reality to understand all that. And, you know, to some degree, like God bless the fans that don't understand that. You know what I mean? Like it almost, I mean, even though I see their outrage a lot over on YouTube, a lot of angry people on YouTube, you know, it must just be nice to think that it is really just a whole, the whole thing's just a fairy tale and that money and business decisions don't really like, you know, sculpt its path. Because for me, it's been such a family thing. Yeah. Um, You know, having worked there, I have seen both sides of it. And I think that kind of, tempers my frustrations that would happen from time to time um, because I understand the path that they have to do to get to us to where we're at. Right. And I, and I myself as an employee of the Walt Disney company for 15 years, I've also participated in that to some extent. Right. Right. So, um, but for me, my brother still works there. Oh, very cool. So um, we actually did a couple parades together and he came in, we did a Christmas parade once where I was an extra, which means I would fill into whatever spot was open that day. Yeah. If someone called in so I could be a dancer, I could be a character. It didn't matter if there was an empty spot. You could be a, in my, a vertical reindeer. You could be a nutcracker guy. You could be one of those chubby snowmen. Like you could be any of those things. Right. Or I could be a, you know, a court dancer or a, you know, so my brother had already started working there and he had, he was doing Tweedledum, I think, the yeah. Tweedledee. Yeah. And the Tweedledum had called out. No. So way. they no put me way. in it. So I, I'm walking to Step Off, which is the area that we call where the parade starts at. Yeah, behind Small World. And, and, and I'm, I'm actually late because I got cast at the last moment when they realized, oh, we're missing this. Hold part. on. To- hold on. Are you telling yeah. me that you were late? You were late for a very important date as. As, character from Alice. <laughs> that is a very astute observation. Yes, I am telling you that. So I got my costume on. I'm, I get my head on. I'm making the, the corner around the back of the show building for it's a small world. Yeah. That's where the parade steps off. Yeah. And, um, 
and I see my my and I get to my float and I climb up onto the float. I see my brother, and we both start laughing inside of our heads. Of course, and we're just kind of like pointing at each other of and course. laughing. The parade steps off. I'm literally hanging onto this bridge that's on the float. Yeah, because we're laugh. We spent half the parade just laughing at each other. Yeah, you know, um, and after we got done with that and in subsequent parades people would introduce um they would when they would refer to my brother they would say oh this is feds or federico's younger brother and i thought i don't like that yeah i don't like that they keep referring to him as my little brother yeah um i said i gotta i gotta i gotta make a change and so i actually got cast in the horseshoe show uh the golden horseshoe jamboree that's a that's a Great deep dive for you too. <laughs> yeah, and what was your role in there? I was a cowboy. <laughs> That's I was great. a singing, dancing cowboy. Uh, As cowboys so, do. Yeah, just there. There I am, right there in the yellow. That's me. Oh my god! I know they won't be able to see that, but I yeah. wanted to show you. Um, and so I started doing that, and then when I would go back to the parade department to visit, people would go, "Oh, who is that?" And Eric would go. Oh, that's my older brother. So I became like his older brother. Yeah, I love but that. But he 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 had started to develop his own group of friends and his own identity at Disneyland. And he's he's been there for thirty years. He just got furloughed last month, unfortunately. But um, what does he do? He, do you mind saying what he does? I say that he works in scheduling somehow, but there's some I don't know exactly what. Okay, he does. so he's like an administrative role at the park now. Right, but he's also done character work. He's, he did parades. He did a lot of art design stuff for them as well at one point That's in cool. the art department. Cool. Um, so exactly what he does now, I'm not sure. It's a mystery. Yeah, companies <laughs> that big, people will tell you their position. You go, I don't understand what you what you just said to me. So let's talk right. about working on the Golden Horseshoe you know, briefly. Like mm-hmm. on the parade, that's sort of like a catch-all, right? Like people don't even plan on seeing a Disney parade, but it. Mm-hmm. parade comes through their life and then they end up being stopped and you know i probably saw magic happens accidentally a hundred times but i'll say this whenever unless you're, you're like beelining to get someplace when a parade mm-hmm. crosses your path it always stops me I'm like eh, i'll wait for the rest of this like i i didn't know that i was a show person or a parade person until i became a disneyland person but when you're in the horseshoe mm-hmm. and you're indoors you have a captive audience that is for real performing because on the parade route is like people are waving and having a good time. But when you're up on a stage, that is like fighting for people's attention. That's making sure that you hit the moments and get the laughter. You get those mm-hmm. moments. Like that's a whole different type of show business being on a stage. Cause there's a lot of people that look at a stage with their arms crossed saying, come on, entertain me. Ed- entertain me. Yes. Yeah. And that's a hard thing to come over. I will I will very quickly make a shout out to uh, all the parade dancers who have ever been and will be. It is a lot of hard work. Sure. Um, we would rehearse, learn uh, a lot of dance routines that were difficult, intricate. And then when you have to do them for about 45 minutes straight, talk about a great workout. I was in great shape. Oh, I bet. Um, so there is a lot of work involved in parades, but there are also moments when you get to like walk and wave, which is always nice. Yeah. Um, but getting into the horseshoe... Um, represented actually graduating if you will from the parade department because all of us parade kids i'll say we would go into the park all the time after hours of course and watch the stage shows and it was the hope of every parade kid or parade adult if you will 
to get into one of the stage shows because then you became union. Uh, you were recognized as like the real talent, if you will. Yeah, no, I get um, that. It's a different level of show business. Absolutely. And a, and a different level in the company and certainly a much, much higher pay grade. Sure. So um, I went and auditioned for, I'd done two contracts in Japan already. I had turned down my third contract. Actually, I didn't even have to audition for the third time. Um, but I turned it down because I was trying to get into the Aladdin's Oasis show that they had <laughs> going at the time back in the day, <laughs> long before tropical hideaway. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, so I went to audition for the golden horseshoe. I went to the audition. It went very well and I didn't get cast. So one of the things that you did as a parade kid is that you got to do a lot of special events where they would need a group of, dancers and you would do commercials i did television specials i did um we went to go to the century plaza hotel in century city and held flags for like an appearance that like one of the presidents was making at the time yeah stuff like that so we're at the century plaza hotel and we're in the underground basement waiting to come out and parade around with our flags you know nation flag of nations right yeah and and the show director for the horseshoe was also the show director for this special event. I see him come into where we're all sitting and I'm like, Oh crap, here he comes. Oh, he's heading my way. He's going to say something to me about the audition. And so I'm just like sitting there and smiling and he goes, I just want to tell you what a wonderful job you did at the audition. And I really wanted to cast you, but you would kind of look like everyone's little brother on stage because the dancers that were already in that show that had to re audition, and all got recast were just a little bit older than me at the time. Yeah. And also taller, yeah. you know, I always wanted to be six foot. It never happened. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, you know, you kind of look like their little brother, but you did an amazing job. And, you know, I really wanted to put you in the show. And I said, well, thank you very much for letting me know. Well, a few days later, I get a phone call saying that one of the full-time people had quit. One of the subs was being promoted to full-time which created a spot opening for a sub. And I thought, hmm, they said, we can guarantee you one day a month, but do you want it? And I said, I'll take it. So if you do that, you can you still be a parade worker or, or now you're only a sub? So you're gambling on more work because you can't live off of one day a month. Correct. And it was a risk. It was a very real risk. But I said, this is my toe in the door into the entertainment department yep. as a real entertainment person, yep. so to speak. I mean, everyone is a real entertainer, but, but there's it would change my, yeah, there's levels. You know, it would, it would yeah. change, change my level for sure. Yeah. The pedigree. Well, here's what happened. A lot of the people in the cast lived in Los Angeles and I lived in Orange County. Ah. So when someone would call in, which would happen regularly, I would be the first one that they would always call because I was the closest. Right. So they knew I could get there, beat the LA traffic down from LA from, from, you know, you know, studio city down yeah. to yeah. orange County. I worked five, six and seven days a week, um, almost out the gate. So it was really wonderful. It became a wonderful experience. And then I got, I moved into a full-time spot, of course. That probably felt good to no longer have it be a gamble and be, you know, get a schedule and know the days that you're yeah. performing. 
once I once I put it together, I said, oh, almost everyone in the cast lives in Los Angeles, and I live seven miles away from the park. Yeah, and I can be there in exactly twelve minutes. Yeah, <laughs> you knew it was in your you favor. Know, it was in my favor, and it turned out to be in my favor. And I did that show for five years, and I was in the last cast that closed that version of the Golden Horseshoe show, which is the Golden Horseshoe Jamboree. So, how many performances would you do in one workday? Five. Five. And what do you do in the time between the performances? Uh, go into a coma. It's <laughs> a lot of work. So you're doing the same show five times a day, five days a week. So you're essentially performing it 25 days. I, yeah. grew, I grew up in a band. And when you go on mm-hmm. tour, you're promoting an album. So you have like six or eight songs that you're committed to performing every night. But then you have a back catalog of like, you know, another six to 12 songs that you'll kind of move in. And so you could play the songs in a different order. You could be spontaneous and react to something that's happened in the crowd. What is it like doing theatrical work where it is down to the minute, your line, your dance, your hit on the stage? What is that type of like complete teamwork like to do over and over and over again? I mean, you got to get on autopilot where it's just happening and you're not even like totally subconscious anymore. Like after a while, could you actually get lost in that work because the muscle memory takes over? Absolutely. Yes. Um, I could probably still do parts of that show in my sleep. (laughs) I bet. I bet. But is that type of entertainment fulfilling when you know I'm sitting on the edge of the stage. Once I hit the stage, we're there for a hard 15 minutes and then we're out like, like 25 minutes, 25 minutes. minutes, Okay. (laughs) So what is that type of entertainment like though? When you know that you're essentially on it, you know, your dad wanted you to be in sports. That's a team exercise right there. Like, Mm -hmm. what is that? Are you anticipating it? Do you, can you still get like an entertainer's rush from that when you have an audience that pops? Yes. Here's the deal. It is the same exact show for you every single time, at least from the start. Right. There are variations that could happen during the show that would make it different. Okay. But it is basically the same show, five shows a day, five, sometimes six days a week. Yeah. But the audience is always different. And that's the factor that makes it unique. That's the X factor. Yeah. Yeah. I get that. So, and if you understand that as a performer, I worked with a lot of performers that get into a, a space of tedium. You know, it's very tedious for them to to do this show over and over. And I myself got into that spot when I was in the spirit of Pocahontas show, another great show to deep dive for you. Yeah. Um, where I was just, I was just kind of, I was nearing the end of my Disney career and I was kind of just getting very tired. Yeah. After after 15 years of like pretty much constant performing, I was like, I'm getting a little tired right now. But um, that audience factor, though, with the horseshoe, I, I completely get that. Because when you go on tour, yeah. like I just said earlier, I mean, you know, as being in a band, you have the flexibility of what songs you play in what order. But it mm-hmm. is the audience that's the X factor. And a uptight, non-fun, non-committal audience, you're just like, I... You don't get to that same rush. You, you you kind of find yourself in your head sometimes, and this is being completely honest, you go, okay, just three more songs. And then there's another audience where there's so much fun, there's so much energy that you go, oh my God, I can't believe there's only three more songs. Exact same sentence, but said completely right. different because yeah. the audience. The energy that an entertainer feels with their audience 
is the reason why you're an entertainer. Like, you know, absolutely. And I have in this later chapter of my life, everything I do is delayed, right? Like there's, I don't know who's enjoying this podcast. I don't know who's enjoying tomorrow's video. Like there's no more like that playing off the crowd, which is why I love live streaming because I love interacting with people, whether they love me or hate me. I love that live interaction. There's such a fun uh, factor to that it's an X factor to it. So I can now see why being in the Gordon Horseshoe would be awesome because you do get like the family that just wants to have their moderately priced Sundays and then they just want to get out of there. But there are the people that circle that on their calendar that was something they wanted to do they grew up where i'm from they loved he hall as a kid they love westerns they they want to see you know that on the stage like the first time we saw the golden horseshoe my wife says talking about my grandmother she goes momo would have loved the gordon golden horseshoe i'm like oh momo would sit in here all day and watch the same show five times that's awesome you know, when you have an audience, you're talking about instant gratification that you get. Instant feedback actually is what it is. Yes. Um, sometimes it's instant gratification. Sometimes it's instant feedback in a negative sense. But um, uh, when you have an audience that isn't responding very well, to me, as, a, as an artist, it becomes the challenge of how do I bridge that gap? Right. What can I modify to come at them in a slightly different way? The beautiful thing about that Golden Horseshoe Jamboree was that it involved a lot of audience participation. Yes. There were there were numbers that we did in the aisles. We got up and danced on the bar. <laughs> we were dancing on the bar of the Golden yeah. Horseshoe. That was amazing. Yeah. Um, you know, when the Can Can girls would come through the you know, come through the audience, it would, you know, make people light up because they were first of all, they were beautiful. They were wearing those great costumes and um, you know, great um, amazing girls that I worked with, beautiful girls that I worked with. Um anyway. It becomes a challenge. Also, we had audience participation where we would bring two people up on stage for a, a comedy sketch that we would do. And that was where things could go off the rails very quickly in a fun way. I remember just like crying and laughing so hard because just what the people would do that you didn't expect. Right. That, and that X was factor, always a very, very fun time. Yeah. That X factor of working with the audience is so rewarding. And, you know, one of the my sort of entertainment defense mechanisms would be when I had a crowd that wasn't feeling it, I would just be like, Hey, we don't want to be here either. Like I would just work whatever level they were at. I would work with them. Or sometimes if I was feeling extra spunky, I would just go the opposite. Like we would just end, you know, we'd be like main support for a larger touring band. Nobody be reacting. And I would just stand on the edge of the stage being like, no, please stop applauding so we can play the next song. And there was nobody clapping. And I would just sort of taunt them into them being like, well, at least there's something that's happening here that resembles entertainment. And you talk about, um, you talk about auditioning. Uh, my dream was for my band to go to a, a much higher level than what it did. We put out five records in the independent record circuit, but we obviously auditioned for the majors and we had really like hot management that was behind us and things were going really well for us. And we would play these little showcases at bars like brownies in Manhattan. Right? So there's no audience there at all. There's a chalkboard out front that says this band at six o'clock, this band at like 645. And basically industry people would go to Brownies. They would go to see the band playing the slot that they were playing. And it was just so record label people that have, you know, they, they'd been sent the CD, they'd been sent the record, but they just needed to see the band perform. Mm -hmm. And a big part of what I did was audience based. And so when you put me on a stage with literally nobody in front of it, 
it's like half the show. So I just always pretended that the audience was there. And in between songs, I had a fictitious conversation. I would put the microphone out for people to sing along with me. Like I literally just did the audience show, even though there was nobody there because I wanted them them to see what I was buying into. And our managers would get these comments all the time from people from like, you know, the biggest of the major labels be like, your boy is an entertainer. Your boy is a smart ass. Like, and, and they would just be like, Hey, that, that is what he does. And he's trying to show you that there's a show here, that they're not just a band. If you put this guy on SNL, he's going to do something wild on stage and, and not just play the song and lean on the microphone like he's on heroin. So I understand, like, I understand so much about what you're talking about because when you're entertaining, there's just sometimes that that audience when it's not there and you have to either pretend like it is or pretend like it's not, it's it's the most demanding performance you'll ever do. But on the flip side, I'm now understanding so much more about the horseshoe, a revolving audience, some, you know, people's interest level from 0% to 200%. And you have to read that room and figure out like, okay, two and a half minutes in, you know exactly what you're working with for the backside of the next 22 minutes. Right. I know exactly who I'm going to pick. Yep. I know who I'm going to bring yep. on stage. Yes. Right. Miss Lily would know who she's going to kiss. Or you figure gonna, all you know. of that out. Like the entertainer scans the yep. room, even though you always scans the room, even though mm-hmm. you can't tell that we're staring at you, you run a peripheral vision on the entire room. And you like, I'll tell you this and you have this skill too. When you're in public, you always know when somebody's talking about you because you have learned the art of masterfully scanning a room and always knowing what's happening around you at all times. Absolutely. I like to call it situational awareness is what I use with, uh, <laughs> with on some of the crews that I worked uh, at in an operational sense. I, I call it talk about situational awareness. Yes. I refer to it as being I'm highly vigilant. But when I'm live streaming like my peripheral vision like i know at all times everything that's happened around me and that's from being on a stage in front of you know a few thousand people Mm -hmm. and only being able to see the first like 200 people and exactly know like because in part of my business too was like who might throw a beer bottle at me like i got to keep an eye on that guy because i did get knocked Mm -hmm. out on stage once (laughs) by hell's angel oh my gosh oh wow (laughs) greatest night of my life i I, I was king of of spotting when like management or show directors would come to see the show yeah and i'd be like someone's on to the back hey <laughs> and they're like what and i'm like yeah he's here you better do your job <laughs> hey when you're in a band same thing when the bigger band you're touring with when you notice one of them watching you from the side of the stage or when you notice their management team watching you same thing right. it's now time to go into overdrive and give them like 110 percent because there's somebody right. in this room that can change the direction of what we're trying to do here. And now's the time to go to go total a game. All right. To sort of start to wrap up our conversation today, let me just get some, some baseline stuff about you. If if we were at the park right now and you said, Bricky, I want to show you. And you know, this is a, this is a 2019 vintage Disneyland. Let's just ignore where we're at. If you said, Bricky, I want to show you my favorite spot where I can go and just sort of be with my thoughts. That spot in Disneyland is. The Golden Horseshoe. Really? Like you actually love to just go in there and sit in there because it reminds you of all those memories? I like to, I will always try to at least pop my head in there and see the stage, see how I would climb up the wall to the little balconies up there. Yeah. Um, it just, see the bar. 
I mean, I remember when they would serve chili in there. Oh, that sounds good. Yeah, it was. Um, I'm a fan of walking through Disneyland. So just the sheer act of just walking onto the property, walking down Main Street, I don't have to get on a ride. Me neither. I've been I've been on the mall. I just love the sheer aspect of walking through the park, absorbing the vibe, seeing the 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 artistic structure that yep. was built and yep. put here. Yep. You know, designed, built, executed. Um, that's my the whole park is my place, just walking through the park. Walking behind Big Thunder Mountain, one of my favorite things to do. Love it. Um, Big Thunder Trail, well, only yeah, Big Thunder Trail, Big Thunder Trail, and Rivers of America, and, and Critter Country too. I think they were only made stronger by the Star Wars Galaxy cash dump. Like it, it mm-hmm. now fully has its own vibes. Like I, I love that area so much. I that's I I also would like to I like to see entertainment as well. Yeah. Um, coming from an entertainment entertainment sure, background. Um, I did want to say one thing about auditioning since you mentioned auditioning and you know what a stressful thing that is. It's the worst. I don't miss that. I don't miss that at all. Hey, actually now I was so good <laughs> at it. I never got a major record at the label deal. So uh. <laughs> there you go. When I auditioned to go be a face character in Japan, I went to the audition for face characters. There were probably about 30 guys in the room with me. Most of them were taller than me. Yeah. I was too I was too tall to be Peter Pan and too short to be a prince. So um, I go to the face character audition. They teach us a simple routine that involved a lot of waving, and I got cut. And I thought to myself, "This is very strange because I'm going to Japan. I don't understand what's happening." The next day was the dancer call, and so I said, "I'm going to go to the dancer call." We learn a much harder dance routine. We execute that dance routine. They line up all the guys and they pull up two guys myself and a guy named Paul, and they say, could you two step forward, please? We would like to offer you the face character job. And in my mind, I'm like, are you offering me the job that you just cut me from yesterday? (laughs) (laughs) And in fact, they were. And I said, that'll be fine. I'll take it. That's awesome. (laughs) So um, when you're walking through the park and you're navigating it like Mm -hmm. a pro. Yes. Mm -hmm. There's something about when San Francisco doesn't feel so big to you anymore. Or when, when someone learns how to finally navigate the Island of Manhattan, you know, Mm -hmm. there, there are these places where people just have complete mental brain lock. They don't, you know, there's the crowds. They know they want to get someplace. They don't know where it's at. But I think one of the best things about being a true citizen of Disneyland is knowing every trail, every path and knowing the life math on, Hey, I know you want a corn dog, but there's a parade going on right now. There's no way we're crossing Main Street. So let's take the back route. You know, like now's a perfect time to like dip over to Small World Mall. You know what I mean? Like there's just sort Mm -hmm. of, it's a symphony, you know? And when it's playing and it's moving, you, you know how to, to perform in it, to live in it. And that would have to be the thing that I absolutely miss the most. Just the life of the park, not the attractions, not the shows, not the snacks, but that life force of the park. I love being in that energy. When you have to cross on the East side of main street from the egg house gate, which is what it used to be egg house back in the day. And you cut through every single store, you cross the little, the little center street there. And then you keep going through all the stores and pop out by Kodak. What used to be Kodak photo by the corn dog, by the corn dog wagon. You, you you know you're playing Disneyland by the by your set of rules when you take that shortcut. 
which is funny why in Disneyland Paris, they created those galleries, right? Yeah, they have the arcades uh, that go yeah. the far end. And not only is it a fast exit, but it's a weather path, you know? And Absolutely. That was, I love those arcades. That was one of those things when I went to Paris, I was just like, yo, I got to go into some of the stores. And I was like, it's the same, probably the same stuff back home. I'm like, no, I want to see a Disneyland Main Street store that has a front door and a back door because I'm so curious to see what it's like to just walk out the back. Yeah. That is a really great perspective. Yes, it is great to see the back of the. You're, <laughs> then, you're like, oh, I can I can come up this way. What? And then also walking through the the those back arcades, there's windows, there's door treatments, there's just you know obviously they're not going to just make it like the parade route that we have mm-hmm. here in in Anaheim where it's just like you know that plastic siding uh, and some old attraction posters like in Paris because it was designed that way. There's more storytelling mm-hmm. that happens back there, so it was very interesting to see. You know, Disneyland to me is perfect because it's so flawed and it and it, it's a complete evolution of now damn near 66 years of we have this thing that everybody wants to come to. How do we keep, you know, adjusting it to fit more and more people as the world changes? But it's interesting to see how World and the Asian parks and, and Paris have taken that template and adapted it for larger audiences, bigger demand, you know, stricter accessibility rules, stricter fire and, and rules. And now as we're moving forward into stricter health codes, uh, as the, we've become a global one neighborhood, one civilization. Uh, it's so interesting to see how these things do transform along with the society or civilization that they represent. It's a fascinating thing. Wild Prince, uh, on behalf of all of the people who you cheered up on those parade routes on behalf of all the children that have a photo somewhere about the time that mom and dad or grandma and grandpa took them to Disney and they got to meet a real round eyed prince. <laughs> I love that. What was that term again? Gaijin. Oh, Gaijin. I'm going to be using that all the time now. <laughs> I love that. But seriously, man, on behalf of all the people that you entertained here in California and far away in Tokyo, man, like, thank you so much for your service. Thank you for what you did as a cast member. But also, as I've come to realize, thank you for being a citizen of Disneyland. I mean, you seem to have very little resentment for this 15-year uh, part of your your career of your life and it does seem like you embrace all the best parts and i kind of had an instinct that you'd be a, a fantastic first person to sit down and do one of these with and i was totally right uh thank you i appreciate all the work that you do um as i like to say once a prince always a prince and that requires and almost demands a certain level of respect that you treat with other people yeah and i, and I love that and it just makes it a great experience all around yeah. yeah. Thank I, you so much. I feel honored that you uh, chose me. Well, and uh, do you mind if we talk about, like, just real quick, do, is it cool to mention where you work now? Um, I have done a lot of other projects, and uh, the last project that I've been associated with was the Meow Wolf Project here in Las Vegas. Um, I went out to Santa Fe for four and a half months uh, with, a, with an amazing company to assist them in their trans, in their, um, uh, starting a new market here in Las Vegas. Yeah. Uh, the project is opening right now. I have had a chance to view it and it is amazing. It's spectacular and uh, you really need to see it. I do need to see it. And Meow Wolf is one of those businesses that's very interesting because it's what happens 
once something like Disneyland exists 65 years, right? Like it's, it's once something like this becomes part of the civilization, this is how a whole other generation of young artists, young entrepreneurs interpret this unique type of entertainment and turn it into something that matches the demands of their generation and their entertainment needs. And I love sort of seeing like where the influence goes. Uh, and and mm-hmm. I have nothing but respect for that project and all the people, all the visionaries that are trying to say, hey, somebody should do something like this for our generation. And I think that is a very noble cause and well executed. So if it were normal times, I would already be like, you think you got a couple of passes for a guy with a small YouTube channel? <laughs> Just let me know. I'll see what I can do. I appreciate it. All right. Thank you so much for being my first guest. And thank you for sharing your stories with us. And also, thank you for your service as a cast member. Thank you. So my my last question for you is this. Citizen of Disneyland button. You got one? Because I don't after 550 visits. I, I don't I don't know if I have one. I don't think I do. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, the series is perfect then because neither one of us have the button that the whole thing's <laughs> themed after. <laughs> Can you get me one of those buttons? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, here's the thing. People have tried to, like, give them to me, and I know that I could just go ask for one, but I want to earn the button, right? I want a cast member who doesn't know who I am, that's not aware of my, like, hardcore Disney fandom and how I've turned it into a pseudo career. Like, I just want a cast member to see me getting lost in the magic and go, oh, that's an exceptional citizen of Disneyland. And then grease me that button like my sister-in-law got on her first trip. Like my best friend from England got on his first trip. Like I want this button that so many people just have gotten in front of me. And I'm like, what do I got to do? How could I be any better? I, I've, I've helped so many strollers up the curb. I've held so many doors. I say, yes, ma'am. And, and no, sir. Like, what do I have to do to get that button? All I can say is this, you know, when I was working in the parades, I felt like I was a prince inside, Yeah. but I didn't get to be a prince until I was allowed to do it with the whole Japan experience. You are a citizen of Disneyland and a button is not ever going to change that. I'm a citizen of Disneyland. It's in a, it's, it's part of our DNA at this point. So yeah. if I'm understanding you right, I got to go to Japan to get that button. Well, thank you for that advice. <laughs> <laughs> throw this one in the garbage because here's another guy that doesn't have a button doesn't have the citizen of disneyland button who are they giving these to if they're not going out to the absolute legends friends let me know did you enjoy today's conversation i you know i i know right out of the gate that these type of podcasts aren't going to get the same numbers of everything else but uh the only number that i'm playing this game for is the long number longevity i want to be able to make content that can be consumed for quite a while. I want to be doing this for a very long time. So I appreciate everybody who's joined club1313.com, giving me the means to to pour even more of my energy into this now that it has become a big part of my career. But I also want to thank you for listening to this type of content and maybe sharing it with a friend because this will really only work if it is supported by the community 
And hopefully that'll happen because you can see that I am very much trying to make content for my community. You know, not just entertain everybody and give me all the clicks and give me all the likes, but I want you to feel like you're represented on the show and that your voice is heard. Even if you never actually make it in front of a microphone that you can find episodes and go, aha, she gets it just like I do. All right. I'm also going to go with a rule. A friend of mine started a magazine when we were kids. And the number one rule to being in the magazine, because he just interviewed like normal people. And I love that I actually ended up working with him on the magazine for a couple of years. But the number one rule is if you ask to be in the magazine, you are never allowed to be in the magazine. So please do me a favor. I will work in the way that I work. I will always be keeping my eyes and ears open for people that I feel like I have a good rapport with people that I feel like I can make an an excellent podcast with and do a tremendous interview with. But if you ask to be on Disneyland for Designers, if you ask to be a citizen of Disneyland on the show, you don't get it because the ultimate in that is I could go get the button tomorrow if I wanted it, but I want to earn it. And I want you to want to earn your spot as a citizen of Disneyland, or maybe you just don't care. And that was the most egotistical thing that I ever said. But I just don't want to be flooded with like audition tapes. Like it will happen. If you're a good citizen, you'll earn that button. You'll earn that spot on the podcast if you even care. I even feel weird saying it, but I'm just trying to manage expectations. Friends, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. This is episode 54. This is the last time that the entire thing for a while will play out free. When big things happen or when I'm feeling like I need to give an episode out to everybody, I'll do it. But starting at episode 55, there will be a paid wall that goes up in the middle of the podcast. Um, That is something that I just have to do to make sure that I can afford to keep making these. So please do me a favor. Join the club if you can. If that's not in your means, I understand. But please don't criticize me for having to support those that are supporting my content. Because after all, I'm still going to be giving out a lot of free content for people that can't make that commitment and I get it and I understand it. It's different times, but please don't criticize the business model because the business model means that all of this content will get to stay much, much longer because if it didn't work, it was all going to be ending really, really soon. All right. I'll just finish with this. This is what I said when I turned uh, adventures in design into a business. I never once have asked you for anything for free. I've never asked you to show up and work for free. So please give me that same respect that I've always given you. All right. I said it once. I don't have to say it again. Episode 55. We'll be back next week. It's the story of July 17th, 1955 with my co-host, Philander Butler will return. I will see you either in a week or two weeks. I, I, I might need a little bit of extra time to get this one all laid out, but either way, I'll see you real soon. And until the next time I see you as a citizen of Disneyland, with your button proudly displayed on the breast of your shirt. That sounds weird. On the front of your shirt. I'll see you back here with more Disneyland stories. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, Disneyland has now ended its normal operating day. We hope you've enjoyed your visit to the Magic Kingdom and that the memories you've made will bring you back again soon. 